The Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. For the last four years, we have witnessed the unraveling of government as we knew it. We now know that the norms of ethical and effective governance that were built up over the decades since President Richard Nixon were far weaker than we expected. We witnessed a systematic effort to use the powers of government to advance private interests. We witnessed abuses of power, including the obstruction of investigations critical to our national security and efforts to leverage the government for electoral advantage. These words are contained in a document called What Democracy Looks Like that was just issued by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW for short. CREW has been working to make sure that we have an accountable, inclusive, and ethical government in Washington. And this report, What Democracy Looks Like, is CREW's blueprint for getting there. CREW uses aggressive legal actions, in-depth investigations, and innovative policy and reform to achieve a government that is ethical, accountable, and open. They take on the big fights against powerful opponents from the President of the United States to wealthy dark money donors. And today, I am very fortunate to have Robert McGuire. Robert McGuire serves as CREW's research director. Prior to joining CREW, Robert founded and ran the Center for Responsive Politics Politically Active Nonprofits Project, tracking the spending and financial networks of dark money groups in U.S. elections. So, Robert, thanks for joining me on the trial brief. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So, first things first, what is CREW? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. So, we are a government ethics and transparency watchdog in Washington, D.C. Our bread and butter is focusing on things like uh, campaign finance issues, dark money, government accountability, and that kind of thing. And in the the last four years, as you can imagine, that has been eaten up by a lot more issues of abuse of power, profiteering at the highest levels of government, and that kind of thing. At our base, we are an organization that aims to make the government more accountable to regular Americans by trying to suss out and put a check on the power that wealthy interests have in this country. Is it a nonpartisan group? Yes, nonpartisan nonprofit organization. And how long has, has CREW been doing this work? Close to 20 years. We were formed in the early 2000s. And you've done the work during Democratic administrations? Yes, absolutely. Through the Obama administration, we were for example, involved in pushing for the Obama administration to release its visitor logs to the White House, which to their credit, they eventually did, but they they didn't do it uh, without a fight. And we actually joined with Judicial Watch on that. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about CREW, and um, it plays a much more important role than a lot of other watchdog groups. I mean, you guys actually don't hesitate in filing suit. Right, absolutely. I mean, this has actually been one of the joys for me coming to crew. So I'm, I'm not a lawyer. My background has been in data and, and investigating. My past job was at an organization called the Center for Responsive Politics. Uh, it's known for its website, opensecrets.org. And it's really a, a very straightforward data outlet for money and politics data. It's, it's, a, it's a place where, uh, you know, they put their expertise into processing, standardizing, and presenting data so that the public has access to this really complicated set of data. And so, you know, when I was there, 
we would, particularly when I was investigating dark money groups, we would hit these instances where, say, this this looks really suspicious. This group, you know, this person is profiting from this group. It looks like, you know, an excessive private benefit issue. Or, you know, we would file a, a FOIA and the, the FOIA officer would say, well, we're, you know, we're not going to give this to you. And, you know, I, then I came to crew and I, we would have those, those instances and they'll say, okay, well, we're going to file a complaint. We're going to, uh, we're going to sue the, the IRS for not giving this data that we're, we're looking for. And that has been, uh, it's almost therapeutic to me. I, I love, you know, being able to put my data investigation skills to work while also getting to work with lawyers who can sue when we're not getting the information that we feel like we deserve. Right. Your work in these times, there's got to be a weight on you guys, right? Because this is not a normal time. This is not a normal administration. And in fact, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys started a lawsuit on the emoluments before the inauguration, or was it right after? It was right after the inauguration, yeah. I don't remember if it was the day of or the Monday after, but it was pretty close on. And we're still fighting those emoluments cases, and they may never be resolved, but it is taxing. Honestly, you know, there are days when some of this just doesn't make sense. I mean, I think one of the unsettling things about this presidency has been that we in the government ethics community, I think in the general sort of public policy community, have long just sort of assumed that we live in a country of laws where some of these things are immutable truths and people, especially presidents, do not violate these rules. And what we've come to learn is that a lot of presidential policy in particular is based on the assumption that the president has a certain level of decorum and a certain level of shame even in the sense that he operates with a, a sense of fear that he may lose the respect of the, of the public. Seeing that all unravel and seeing how many loopholes there are when, when a president is utterly unconcerned with the checks that previously were not necessary for other presidents has been really stressful and unsettling. But I have to say, it, it's also been therapeutic at the same time to, again, come to crew to be able to at least try to do something. You know, we haven't succeeded in everything. I, I'm really proud of the successes that we have had, but just trying, you know, has been uplifting. You know, it's, it's helpful to at least feel like when all of this is happening, you are doing something to try to stop it. Yeah, and, and the thing that's striking about what's gone on with this administration is that Congress has basically abdicated its Article One powers with respect to checking this president and this administration. Yes, and and we've seen this in so many ways. I mean, the first two years of, of President Trump's time in office, he essentially was unchecked in any way. Uh, he had a Republican House, Republican Senate. There were a number of major questions in terms of the way he was governing, the the, the things that he was doing, and there were no major congressional investigations no hearings, no, no sort of accountability from, you know, his co-equal branch of government. And I would say on the, once the House actually did shift, we saw a number of hearings, we saw a number of attempts at accountability or at least investigation and fact-finding. And what we saw was just an across-the-board 
stonewalling. And again, it gets back to these questions of norms where you have instances where people were subpoenaed to appear before a particular committee. They just didn't. And so it raised the question, do they need to be arrested? Like, what do you do when you get to a point where there isn't a further sort of check or a further push that Congress has other than arresting somebody? You know, we've never really been in that position. Seeing the ways that Congress has either entirely ignored the things that he's doing or tried and failed to hold him accountable has been honestly pretty terrifying. And I would say also a part of this uh, throughout the Trump presidency is we've been tracking President Trump's conflict of interest since day one as well. We're well over 3,000 conflicts of interest at this point. And one part of that is that we track all visits to President Trump's properties, where, you know, whether President Trump is going to his properties, whether high-level administration officials are, are going to his properties. And one of the other things that we track are members of Congress going to his properties. And one thing that's been stunning about that is that it's not just that his Republican allies in Congress were silent on the issue of him continuing to profit from his business while president. It's that they embraced it. Party committees and campaign committees have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at his properties. They go frequently to either his D.C. hotel, to Mar-a-Lago, to Bedminster. High-level cabinet officials appear there. When industry groups hold expensive events at President Trump's properties, they get access to his administration officials and members of Congress. I mean, it's, it's really been stunning to see the issue wasn't even just sort of silence on the matter of his lack of ethics. It was an embrace of the the shattering that he that, that sort of he brought about by not divesting his properties. Yeah, and and I'm old enough to remember Jimmy Carter having to divest his interest in a peanut farm <laughs> before taking office. Right, and President Obama wouldn't refinance his mortgage during the financial crisis for fear that he would get special treatment from banks. I mean, presidents are not subject to the same uh, ethics rules as every other member of the federal government is. But they have always acted as though they were. Throughout at least modern American history, presidents have been very careful to follow ethics rules, especially the ones that come, uh, you know, that, that apply to these kinds of conflicts of interest and personal profiteering off of office to avoid the appearance of corruption. And so now we have a president who uses the fact that he's not subject to those laws as sort of proof, in his mind at least, that he is not capable of having conflicts of interest, which is not at all what, what the rules actually state or what the purpose of the rules are. Yeah, and, and quickly, for, for people who may be listening to this who don't understand or may just say, well, so what? They, they go to his property. So what the Saudis, you know, rent out three floors for, for a month. So what? <laughs> right. I understand this. So, you know, what, what does it matter if Senate Majority Leader goes to Trump's hotel on a Tuesday? First off, that doesn't necessarily matter in, in that particular instance. But this is one of the reasons that we track this and, and we actually try to quantify it because it's, it's the fact that over time, these numbers are meaningful. And the reason that we're tracking them is that the president has an avenue. Well, let me back up. Let me, you know, in campaign finance, a lot of t- 
time we have to sort of explain to people that what we're talking about when we talk about the influence of big donors is that we're not saying they go to a particular member of Congress or to a presidential candidate or something and say, I'm giving this contribution. You, you write this bill and pass the bill. That's, this is the reason I'm giving it to you. It's not as though they always give what they want. They always get the bills that they want. It's that they are buying access. So the imbalance of the system is that if you are wealthy enough, you become a donor, you go to intimate fundraisers, you have FaceTime with the most powerful people in the country, you create personal relationships with those people, your phone calls are answered not by interns, but by chiefs of staff or, you know, member of Congress themselves. And you have these opportunities to, to push policies and other, you know, issues that are important to you in a way that the regular Americans don't. What President Trump has, has done to that system is that that all still exists. That's all still happening. And it's sort of gone into overdrive. But at the same time, these wealthy interests and wealthy donors have the ability to funnel money directly into the president's pocket. And that is unheard of in the modern presidency. The fact that, you know, for example, payday lenders, the Payday Lending Association can spend a million dollars at Trump Doral's uh, resort in Miami and get a policy that will save the industry $7.5 billion. You know, a small refrigeration trade association that we found spent $700,000 at the same Trump property, actually. And within weeks, they got a favorable environmental regulation from the Trump administration, an administration that's not known for being big on passing environmental regulations. Um, they, they spent most of their time in office rolling them back. And so we have sort of an acceleration and a level of corruption that is unheard of in this presidency. And it's all about, well, and, and I should also add, the president himself is keenly aware of who is paying fealty to him, who is loyal to him. He knows who is spending money at his properties. And so the fact that we, we already have the imbalances uh, that come with access to powerful people and giving campaign finance, you know, giving campaign contributions, but now they can do it by personally enriching the president uh, in the process is just something that we have never seen before. And I should also note that at least with campaign finance issues, there's a paper trail. So we don't have receipts at President Trump's properties. So, you know, we have these stories of, for example, T-Mobile executives going to, you know, spending lots of money at Trump properties while they're trying to get his administration's approval for a merger with Sprint. Or we have the, you know, the Saudi example that, that, that you mentioned we have all of these examples that have been reported, but we know this is the tip of the iceberg because we we don't have the their you know the the financial records for every Trump property, and we can't tell who is spending you know what money at all of his properties. And so there there's a lot going on under the surface that we will learn about for years to come. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is under the surface, and you know, and again, not to take anything away from the hard work of crew. But a lot of this is just brazen out in the open. Yeah. Between Mar-a-Lago, you know, we can go through this whole, the whole litany of four years of, you know, shaking down foreign leaders. I mean, we can go on and on and on. 
And that's the staggering part about these four years is that they haven't been, you know, there hasn't even been an attempt in most cases to hide or, or to, you know, conceal what's going on. I mean, you look at even who, who gets appointed to be a cabinet member. There's no attempt to even, you know, make it look on the up and up. Yeah, this is something that's going to stick with me for years after this, because I, I, I remember the feeling in the early days of the Trump administration thinking, okay, well, at least there's going to be a limit. You know, there's, there's going to be a point at which even his political allies are going to push back and say, no, that's too much. We didn't ever really hit that. I, the only example that I can think of where Trump actually backed off something that he wanted to do was when he pretty blatantly tried to hold the G7 at his Doral Resort in Miami. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a great example. Yeah, was I mean, it was it was very clear that he was the one who made the decision. He wanted to have essentially one of the biggest international marketing events that he could ever have for free while at taxpayer expense at his property to have all of the world's major leaders at his crumbling resort in Miami. And that finally, it it took weeks, but it actually, you know, he backed off and then they, you know, they shifted it to Camp David. And then I, I think I'm, my timeline is a little messed up here because pandemic and everything is every week is a thousand years, but I think that was this year. And so they didn't actually even end up having it because of the pandemic. But that's an exception that proves the rule. Think of the impeachment where, you know, no Republicans were really convinced of the importance of what he was doing or the sort of what was bad about what he had been doing in that call. But then he went out on live TV and said, you know, that the Chinese should investigate Joe Biden, too. So he wasn't even trying to hide the fact that he was abusing his power and abusing, his, you know, the bully pulpit to go after his political enemies. And so, you know, our system, and I think to some degree, our, our you know, our national psychology is not equipped to respond to someone who's out in the open being corrupt and abusing his power. You know, we're so used to things like Watergate break-ins, you know, things done in secret. That's not what we have in a lot of instances with Trump. He just does it in public. He tweets it out or he, he says it on live TV. Yeah. And even, you know, you mentioned Watergate. I mean, if you, if you think back, Richard Nixon resigned because leaders of his own party walked in, sat him down and said, you're done. Right. And right. We, we don't have that. To me, that's really the, the most disappointing and disturbing thing, because I think our system was was set up where it was possible to have a, a, a wannabe tyrant. But we had, you know, the House and we had the Senate and we had the courts to to check that. And with without that, we see now how perilous our democracy is. Now, that brings me to what democracy looks like. What I'm referring to is a report that was issued a couple of days ago, um, I think. Again, I'm like you. Every day is the same. It's just <laughs> one, one long day. But, yeah. Uh, this report that Crew issued, I think, is really, I, I really don't know how to describe it with, with doing it justice. I think it is long overdue. I think it is an important report. You know, why don't you tell us about the background of it, how it came about, and what the aim of this report is? 
Yeah. So, I mean, we looked back at the last four years and then, you know, sort of took into account the fact that things were broken before Trump even took office and asked ourselves, what do we need to do to close the loopholes to protect ourselves from the kinds of abuses of power and conflicts of interest and corruption that we saw? I would say the corruption of the system before President Trump took office and and then the just brazen outright acts of corruption from Trump and members of of his administration um, during his time in office. And and how can we fix those? So how can we fix our, our ethics rules? How can we change campaign finance rules to make it harder to pour millions of dollars, dark money into elections? How can we stop candidates from hiding their tax returns, you know, things like that. So going through and point by point, trying to break out the, the changes that can be made. You know, that I think we've touched on a few things that, that are, are we can't really resolve, you know, this, this issue of why wasn't there sort of a, a set of Republicans that went over to the White House and said, you know, you need to resign. That's not something that we can fix. But there is a lot about this that we can fix. There's a lot of sunlight that we can shine in areas where the Trump administration actively sought to keep things in the shadows. And so this is a, a long, long document laying out all of the areas that we think changes can be made. The suggestions and recommendations are, they relate to, to a number of different aspects of the government. They, they relate to the president, they re, some relate to Congress, some relate to the courts, and they are very ambitious. I think is the probably the yeah. word. It's it's a an absolute wish list, but I I think one of the the issues before any of this really can take place is to restore legitimacy to right. to our government to to the courts, and without that legitimacy, which has now been under attack. I mean, not just I mean this is a constant assault twenty four seven on the legitimacy of not only the elections. Uh, this has been going on, the legitimacy of the courts, of the DOJ, FBI. Yeah. That is the underlying problem that has to be solved before we can solve a lot of these other problems. In part, what made Trump possible was that most Americans look at the government and they see corruption. They see sort of self-serving, self-aggrandizement on the, on the part of, of both career officials, rightly or wrongly, and you know, members of Congress, they see a lack of any progress um, that impacts their lives, especially in Congress. And someone came along and said, they're all, you know, they're all corrupt. I alone can fix it. I'm going to drain the swamp. You know, I think a lot of people that, you know, well, well, not I think, it, it clearly resonated with a lot of people. And obviously the, the scam was that Trump had no intention of, of fixing any of this stuff. He has no interest in policy. He has no interest in he has no political philosophy. But he exploited that as as a way to get his foot in the door. And then he took everything that was broken, and he and he pushed it into overdrive. You know, he 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 made no effort to fix any of this stuff. So a, a part of this is trying to almost in a sense inoculate uh, ourselves from uh, another. You know. Not well. I wouldn't say even just another president, but uh, trying to make it so that political officials who want to use their office for something other than doing the business of the people who put them there, 
to make that harder. You're right that this is an ambitious list. And especially if one of the problems with our government right now is, is a lack of action, just a total inability to think big in a lot of ways. I, I saw a report just the other day saying that this is the um, least productive Congress in uh, a number of years, I mean, decades. I don't know exactly how far back it goes, but we are not holding our breath that we're going to get all of this done. But I would also say this is a long fight. This is a fight that we were doing before Trump came along. And, you know, if you look back at Watergate, you had um, reforms of the campaign finance system after Watergate. You also had the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that was, I think, four years after Nixon left the White House. And so, and, and that stemmed directly from investigations related to Watergate. You know, we're going to have a long period of reforms. We're not, we're not in this for the short run. We're, we're saying <laughs> this is going to take a long time, but uh, these are the things that we think need to be done. Yeah, this is going to take a lot of work. There's been a lot of damage, and this damage wasn't just didn't just begin with Donald Trump. I mean, this has been this smashing of the norms and smashing of systems has been going on for decades. I think back to uh, Newt Gingrich. He's the one who started this and created this Frankenstein monster or the environment for a Trump to become president. It, it didn't begin with Trump. It's a long process that has taken, you know, it's worked its way up to this. I think we're at the most perilous time. I mean, in modern time, and again, I'm not talking about World War II, and I'm not, I'm not talking about that, but I'm, I'm talking about with respect to the health of our democracy. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I keep finding myself sort of <laughs> rolling around my head is that at the end of the day, all of this stuff, our, our government, all these rules, they only exist and they only hold any force in so much as they do because we believe that they do. And you get to a point where the people's faith in government, people's faith in elections, people's faith in the system erodes enough, they just won't believe in it anymore. <laughs> you know, and, and this has always been a, a delicate line that a lot of us in the good government and transparency community have tread in the sense that we want to point out what's broken and we want to put out, point out inequities. But we also don't want people to lose faith in their government and in their ability to make change. And that's what I worry we're seeing at a larger scale than we've seen it in a long time right now. And I, I think the president is personally driving a lot of it. You know, we're, we're, we're watching him discredit a legitimate election all day, every day right now with baseless claims of fraud uh, and malfeasance. And there are tens of millions of people who are going to believe that the next president isn't legitimate based on that. And so we further, we see this further erosion of the faith that is required for people to believe that government works, that government can work and that it's worth trying to salvage when it's broken. Yeah, exactly. The other question I have for you, and I'd love to get your thoughts on holding future presidents, future members of Congress accountable. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into the room, shaking my head, and my wife say, what's wrong? And I tell her, 
you know, you're not going to believe, <laughs> you know, Trump did this, Trump said this, and she looks, she goes, so what? He's going to get away with it. What are they going to do to him? And, and <laughs> right. I mean, and, and that, that's problematic. And, and I know from being an attorney, obviously, you know, the rule of law is everything. And, and unless there is accountability, there's no end to what can happen. Right. We are, you know, I would say people in our community are, are a cynical bunch and we are those people who maybe sometimes are saying, you know, so-and-so is going to get away with it. Or, you know, even before, like I said, you know, tracking dark money groups, there, there are these, these, these things that particular groups are doing to pour millions of unaccountable money into the system using nonprofit groups for uh, purposes that they were never meant to be used for. And you look at it and you kind of roll your eyes and say, Oh, well, they're going to get away with it. But I would say, None of us would stay in this area if we totally lost, you know, our faith that, that things can eventually change. You know, the, the the old saying that nothing ever changes until it does, you know, and there there are these moments where you you just very suddenly get critical mass and people are fed up and they do the right thing. And it, this is a constant battle. You know, democracy is not something that is ever perfect. It is, a, it is a process. It is not a, you know, a fixed thing. And it is, it has to constantly be rejuvenated and refreshed. Um, and that's what I see our role is right now is trying to, against, you know, incredible odds, trying to fix these things. And it's going to be long and it's going to be painful. And I, I think one of the, my biggest fears uh, as we move into 2021 is that because it's going to be long and in a lot of ways boring, as important as it is, people are going to kind of tune out. I mean, they've been through so much in the last four years. And also it's just been this constant adrenaline high. And the work to fix all this stuff is not going to be as thrilling. That, that is, I think, my fear is that when we, when we turn around and we say, look, we've got a roadmap. We're here to fix this. We, 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 you know, this is not impossible. Bigger things have been done before. Let's fix this. We might not have the same enthusiasm as we had. And I mean, I don't mean necessarily crew, but sort of the, the, the government community in general, we might not have the same enthusiasm as we had when we are saying, you know, this president needs to be impeached or here are these uh, incredible FOIA documents that we just got showing the, the president trying to use his office to profit off of, you know, the G7 or something like that. We're going to need to condition ourselves to being vigilant and being tuned to these processes in a way that is not as exciting as it was for the last four years and, and terrifying as it was for the last four years. Yeah, for sure. The authoritarian playbook is basically wearing you down, making you, you know, believe that, you know, right. th- there is no truth and therefore the the truth comes from, you know, the authoritarian. Is it possible to create an independent ethics office, whether it's in the White House, in the Senate, anywhere, that has teeth, you know, that's able to to investigate and to bring some sort of consequence to actions? Possible, yes. I mean, I certainly think it's possible. I, I, I think, like so many of, of these other questions, it's a, it's a 
it's more a question of, of one, do we have the political will? And two, can we, can we get enough people to believe it's important to put the political capital into, into doing it? I think a, a part of that will hinge on whether or not the kinds of, of ethics issues that we saw in this administration were an aberration or not. And whether we go back to our norm where there's certainly, there's not an absence of ethical issues, but um, there's generally people who are uh, responsive. They want to resolve them. They are, are not posing, you know, they're not billionaires, for example, who have, and are multimillionaires who have these financial assets that are near impossible to unwind and, and things like that. <laughs> I, I think a part of that question hinges on whether or not we continue to see these same sort of ethical issues in the future or whether or not they, they sort of go back to kind of a, I don't want to say more pedestrian, I don't want to insinuate that, that these issues weren't important in the past, but, but where, you know, somebody is found out they didn't pay enough taxes and they pay their back taxes with interest or something like that. It's not, you are actively invested in a company that you said you divested from and you've been holding one-on-one -on -one meetings with the CEOs of these companies while you're profiting from them. You know, it's just a difference in scale. And I think that's a part of what might drive the political will on creating something like that. I hope so. I, I, I don't know if, if I'm as optimistic in the short term, I, I think in order to accomplish those things, you need two really viable political parties. And you really don't have two viable political parties. I mean, the Republican Party has been hijacked. And I think the message uh, that has been sent over the last four years is becoming the the mantra. And, and I just don't know where it's going to go. I, I, I'm very optimistic usually about things. And uh, th this one, I uh, between the amount of damage done and the way I see, you know, the Tom Cottons of the world proceeding, you know, forward, it, it scares the hell out of me. But that being said, Robert, I, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time to to come on and talk about this. I, I really would love to have you on another time to talk only about the dark money because I, I could spend I can spend, you know, forty minutes on that easy because I find that, you know, really, really important and, and really interesting. So maybe we'll have you have you back on soon, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I am I am always happy to talk dark money. So you just let me know. <laughs> well I, I appreciate you being so gracious with your time and uh, and good luck. I'm gonna urge everybody to read that report. Cruz report on democracy, and uh, I will attach it to the podcast notes. And be sure to um, follow Robert on Twitter. If I were you, it's really one of the one of the better Twitter feeds out there. What, what is the what, what is your your Twitter handle? It's Robert McGuire with an underscore at the end, and I'm an M A G McGuire. So R R O B E R T M A G U I R E with an underscore at the end. Got it. And Robert, keep up the great work at Crew. And again, you can support crew with small donations. And, and I think if you're, you know, yeah, it's very important to, to make those donations to, you know, to candidates. But I think it's also really important to get those donations to crew because they are and, and you could read this report and you'll know how important crew is to trying to keep this democracy together. So thanks, Robert. Keep up the great work and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye.
On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.